Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Well, again, good morning to all of you who are worshiping with us today. Uh, we have been doing a study through Mark over the past, uh, really, three or four months, and we're taking a break from it today, and we're going to be looking at Luke's gospel, um, chapter tw- end of chapter 22 and into ch- uh, chapter 23, and it really is focused on the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And, uh, you know, Palm Sunday, we are looking, uh, when we, we think about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and how fantastic that was. I would love to have been there to see that. Was it, How many people were there waving my palm in the air and laying it down? And a lot of times that we, uh, we let our kids do that when they enter in the church. I think next year we're just going to get everybody to do that when we come in on, on Sunday morning. Get everybody a palm, lay it down. I don't know who's going to get to walk in you know, over those things. But uh, uh, that's the way it was. It was a celebration welcoming Jesus into the city. And nobody there at that point had a sense of the tragedy that was awaiting them towards the end or middle of the week. Nobody had any sense of what was going to be happening. Their exuberance and joy at the beginning of the week was going to turn to tears. Um, But that's what we're reading here in Luke chapter 22 at the end and then into chapter 23. And this is a long section of scripture uh, so this week I'm going to have you remain seated, uh, uh, unless you're 16, and then you can stand up, and then you can, if you really, um, and so we're going to look at Luke uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 66, and uh, one of the, I want you to look for two things as we're going through this passage. One is all of the titles that are used to refer to Jesus, and then number two, what this shows us about the character of Jesus. So really focus on, it's a long passage, but those are the two things I want you to focus on. So we're reading Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought, this, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and, bring, and release to us Barabbas! a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This ends the account of the crucifixion and death of Jesus, our King. God has given us his word so that we can trust it, believe it, and base our lives upon it. Let's pray and ask him to bless us. Lord Jesus, uh, this is just part of the story we just read story of your crucifixion, but we know, we know that in the pages of scripture and in the, in the annals of history, the resurrection was just a few days later. So we pray today that we would look at this in light of the fuller story to understand it best, your identity, who you were, who you are, and what it means for our lives. Your crucifixion uh, was something that was planned long ago uh, by the Father for our sakes, would you help us to understand it fully, more completely? And we pray that you would enable us to rejoice in it. Would you bless me, Lord? I am struggling with what to say, how to say it to some degree. And so I pray that you would be pleased to enable me to hold forth your word and to communicate it from my heart by the power of your spirit and that all of us who are here today would be built up as we look to Christ our Savior. Bless us and be with us, we pray in his holy name. Amen. I think probably, like many of you, I was uh, glued to the news earlier this week and the tragedy that happened in Nashville. Uh, I, uh, I, I know the pastor of the church. He did Reformed University Fellowship with me, and uh, I had just gotten an email saying that his daughter had come out of surgery, and then a few minutes later, they released the names of the people who had passed away, and his daughter was one of them. And I, I had to leave the room. Rebecca just turned away from me reading, and we just kind of dealt with that. And so, uh, in some ways, there's, there's tragedy that's taking place there. And we can look at this passage and say, we, we can understand what people were dealing with here in uh, Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was crucified, and how brutal and how wrong, how unjust it was. But then at the same time, uh, we're beginning to hear stories of things that happened in Nashville, and one of those was Catherine Kuntz, um, who was the head of the school. And one of the things that's interesting about her story, she was one of the adults who was killed, is they looked at uh, the position of her body when they found her, and it appears that she was running straight towards the perpetrator, running straight towards the person in the midst of it, to stop what was about to happen. But to, she ran to danger in order to protect others and to save them. 
Now, if you can understand that image, you can understand exactly what's going on in this passage. Because when Jesus was born, he was already set. And when he started his earthly ministry, he was already set. And when he comes into Jerusalem this day, and people are putting palm branches on the the ground, and they're cheering for him, his face is already set. And he knows exactly what's going to happen to him. I'm going to be crucified by the Roman authorities, and I'm going to be handed over to them by the Jewish leaders. He knew. He'd been predicting it for a long time. He said, this is exactly how this is going to play out. So Jesus, his entire life is running towards danger. He's running towards uh, the harm, towards the suffering he's going to endure for the sake of his people. And so where did Catherine Kuntz learn about this? The, The headmistress of a Christian school? She learned about it from her Savior. She learned about it from Jesus himself. So what we're looking at And this passage is the cross of Christ, and we're going to talk a little bit about the conflict of the cross, and we're going to talk also about the victory of the cross in the midst of this. Um, And as we look at this passage, one of the things I find fascinating about it is that it's a case study in faith and how various people respond to Jesus. So in this passage, not a lot of people were previously followers to Jesus. These are people like Herod and Pilate and uh, the, the guards, the thief on the cross. So there are a variety of people who don't, they're being introduced to Jesus maybe for the first time in the midst of this, and they're all responding to what they see. So what did they see about Jesus? So I asked you to kind of look for the, the uh, titles that are being used. What are the things that are being said about Jesus? So some of those things that are being said uh, in, verse, in chapter 22, 67 and throughout, he's called the Christ. So there's an awareness he's the Christ. Chapter 23, verse 2, he's called the King. In 23, 3, he's called the King of the Jews. In the passage, he's called the Son of Man, the Son of God. It's talked about his kingdom being given to him in 23.42. He's seated at God's right hand. He's the Christ of God. He's the chosen of God. And what does all of that mean? What it means is Christ is intended by God, and when he came into the world, to be the king over all. Not just the king of the Jews. They had this, the Jews had this understanding of this mysterious figure they knew as the Messiah, which we refer to as the Christ. One's a Hebrew and one's a, a Greek term, but it's the same thing. They had this sense of this person's going to come who's going to be of the line of David. He's going to be the true king of Israel, but there's going to be something more to this man that's going on, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. And as we're reading through this passage and through the rest of the gospel and the, the epistles, the Christ is God's world changer. He was the one who was going to come into the world, wrestle it away from the darkness of human sin and oppression, and bring new life into it. And that's part of that image there where he talks about the, gra- the, uh, the tree being green. New life is being breathed into Israel. New life is being breathed into God's people because Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. And those who believe in him and trust in him, they're seeing new life. They're, they're escaping from addiction. They're escaping from fears. They're escaping from all the things that rack their lives. He's even raised the dead at various times. So Jesus is the king over all. So that's a little bit about his identity. Uh, what did you see about his character as we went through? A few things. One is, Pilate says, I can't find this man guilty of anything. He's not, he says it three times. This man's not guilty of any of the charges. He's guilty of nothing, deserving death. And then the centurion who's watching Jesus' death, he's watching the landscape grow dark, he's watching the way Jesus is dealing with people, even on the cross, 
And he says, truly, this, was a, and this man was innocent. So you see that, that Jesus is uh, guiltless. But at the same time, this is fascinating to me as I read through this. Jesus has been condemned to death. And you would think, you would think if he was like you and me, he would just give up. Right? He would enter into this deep depression as he enters and he's going to the cross and just like, this is just it. I guess I'm going to just go and die. So at least he would be quiet and you know, like, go sheepishly to the cross. Uh, and then others of us, you may say, well, if, I, if that were me, I'd just rail against everybody. I'd get angry. I'd say, well, who do you think you're dealing with here? You need to stop right now if I were Jesus. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't enter into a depression. He doesn't enter into a defense. Instead, he does what he's always been doing. He ministers to the people. And even as he's walking and people are weeping and grieving over him, he says, don't grieve over me. And then he enters into grief over them because he knows what's coming in 70 AD when the walls of Jerusalem fall and the Romans destroy the city. He's grieving for them because there's such hardness of heart in their city. And this is going to eventually take place. Then even when he's being nailed to the cross, he's praying for his executioners. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing here. They have no idea. And then when he's on the cross, there's a man who, and if Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross alongside of him, would not have understood the gospel, would not have had any inkling of the identity of Jesus, but he's beginning to get it while he's on the cross. He, he, he prays to Jesus, who's right there, and says, remember me when you come into your, your, your kingdom. And then Jesus forgives that man and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus does the same thing on his way to death that he did to life, and he's still doing the same thing today, meeting people in their brokenness and uh, calling people to faith. And, and this is a big deal for us. And, and a lot of times, you know, if, if you look at this passage of Scripture, there are libraries and libraries of sermons on this passage in Luke chapter 23, the crucifixion of Jesus. And the writers of the epistles keep going back to the crucifixion of Jesus over and over again because it was such a big event. But a lot of people also focus on this man, this thief on the cross. Because for many of us, it gives us hope in a way that nothing else gives hope because we see a guy who is completely broken and in the last moments, the last few hours of his life, he comes to faith in Jesus and there's the assurance of salvation that, that this guy is going to be with Jesus. He's not going to deal with all of his, the penalty of his sins that he's committed. He's a, he's a committed felon. He's a convicted felon. And here he is on the cross and Jesus is forgiving him. And he's going to enter into paradise that very day. So what does that teach you about God's grace? And what does that teach you about faith in him? came across a quote a while back from uh, Richard John Newhouse, who is, a, I think, a Catholic writer. And, uh, but I loved what he said, and I think we have it on the screen behind me, so you can just follow along as I read it. Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith. He takes what he can get, so to speak, and gives immeasurably more than he receives. He takes our faith more seriously than we do and makes more of it than we ever could. His response to our faith is greater than our faith. The thief, that's who he's referring to, has faith smaller than a mustard seed, and it blossoms into a tree of eternal life, a tree of paradise. Christ's response to our faith is ever so much greater than our life. Give him an opening, almost any opening, and he opens life to wonder beyond measure. When our faith is weak, when we are assailed by contradictions and doubts, 
we are tempted to look at our faith, to worry about our faith, to try to work up more faith. At such times, however, we must not look to our faith, but look to him. Because if you're looking to the amount of faith you have, do I have enough? The answer is no. But the person of weak faith gets the same strong Jesus as the person of strong faith. We have that Savior who to the very end was ministering to the people around him. And do you not think that he has the same kind of compassion and tenderness towards you? Absolutely. So this is a little bit about the conflict that's going on between them. Is because as you look at this, this is this Jesus who he is, and you have various responses to him. So you have uh, Pilate who represents Rome, all of the Roman power. And so what does he believe? And how does that affect the way that he comes to Jesus? Well, he's not really concerned all that much about Jesus because he, Jesus is not a threat in his mind to Roman supremacy. And so in terms of Jesus, he's like, I can let this guy go. He's not doing anything that's affecting Rome. So this is a squabble between you. You go deal with it. I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. So Roman supremacy. The Jewish leaders, they wanted Jewish ascendancy. And that wasn't the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. He didn't come wearing a crown. He didn't ride into the city on a war horse. He didn't ride into Rome on a war horse. He rode into the city on the foal of a donkey, showing that he had come in peace to bring peace to his people. And so they're approaching with the wrong kind of faith. And then here's this one man, this thief on the cross. And he believes with small faith. He doesn't, have, he doesn't know everything we do. He's never been to seminary. He didn't have a finished Bible in front of him. He didn't have the KJV, the ESV, the NIV. He didn't have any translation. But he saw Jesus. And what he had was enough for Jesus. Because he couldn't save himself. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to bring victory over our sin by the cross. And so, let's talk about that for a little bit. Crucifixion. Crucifixion's pretty horrible. Um, I have a video. I'm just, we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> in the first century BC, Cicero calls it the most horrendous torture. So hideous was the act of crucifixion upon a man that Cicero said this, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was gruesome. It was horrible. So what did they do? Well, one of the things that talks about them doing with Jesus is they, they scourged him with whips. Basically, what that means is they had a whip with leather thongs on the end of it of various lengths. And at the end of some of those, they had pieces of metal, little balls of metal. And these belt balls of metal, when you swung the whip, would tenderize the tissue underneath so that when the pieces of bone that were tied to the other shards hit in the skin, it made it easier to tear in and lacerate the body. And they would do this to the back as a person was tied to a, a, a post. Crucifixion. We don't know much about crucifixion from the Bible. It doesn't really tell us. It's an assumption that they had. But we know from contemporary writers of Jesus the kind of things that they would do. So kind of like taking the longer story and make it a little bit shorter and more palatable, palatable and using the images that we're familiar with. Uh, the person was stripped, humiliated, laid flat on a cross, you know, you've seen the cross. We wear them around our necks. Some churches have them prominently displayed. Uh, but Jesus was laid down, his hand stretched out, and he was nailed to a cross. And then, right, right here, right, not here. Do you, you want to know the reason why they didn't nail people right here? 
because that couldn't support your weight and it would tear right through. So they would nail here. And so Jesus was nailed to a cross by his hands and his feet. And then they would take the cross and hoist it into the air and there was a hole in the ground and they would let it drop into the hole like a, a fence post, which would cause tearing in feet and hands. And there he would hang for hours in front of people. Now, when you talk, when you read, and I think this came from John Stott. He did a lot of work on this in his book, The Cross of Christ. He said, many, many physicians have studied crucifixion through the years. And, you know, whatever you think about how a person died with crucifixion, I thought it might be pain. I thought it might be blood loss. But most physicians will say that the main issue was not being able to breathe. It was asphyxiation. So you couldn't get enough air into your lungs. Because of the way that your body was hanging from wrists and from hands, there'd be so much pain, you constantly tried to shift your weight. And because your feet would hurt so much, because of nerve endings, you would hang by your hands. And hanging by your hands, you can't get enough oxygen. So people would constantly be lifting up to get a breath of air. And eventually, they would just run out of the ability to get oxygen. And that's how they would die on the cross. Um, but never, you know... As many people as were crucified by the Romans, and there were hordes of people that were crucified by the Romans. There was never anyone whose suffering was greater than Jesus' suffering. Because Jesus wasn't just suffering physically. He was suffering spiritually on our behalf. Because not only was he isolated from his friends and mocked this way by his enemies, but God had turned his face away. So one of the things Jesus said on the cross is, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, why have you, my God, forsaken me? So Jesus has experienced not just the worst of physical tortures, but he's experienced the worst of spiritual tortures on the cross. We read this in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, that's the crucifixion, and it's horrible. It's horrendous. But what's fascinating, as you begin to look through the rest of Scripture, they, the writers of the Bible did not treat this as um, just a simple tragedy. They saw it as a victory. They saw it as something that was triumphant, so listen to this. This is in Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He said, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, the cross, or in him, in Christ on the cross. So when the Bible talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, it sees it not just as something that is horrible suffering on the part of Jesus, but a victory that Jesus was intentionally performing on our, on our part. And what this is, uh, the, the sacrificial system from the Old Testament is teaching us to understand how we should understand the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And one of those things is, one, God would allow a substitute Second, one of the things it showed us is we needed a perfect sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could never do it. So we needed a sacrifice who represented us as a human, 
but who could pay for infinite guilt against crimes against an infinite God by having infinite merit in and of himself. So at that one moment on the cross, Jesus was able to pay for the sins of all of his people for all time. It was a victory that he accomplished on our behalf. And the term uh, atonement is used to capture the soul-saving work of Jesus on the cross where he's satisfied. So let me give you six big truths very quickly and then an illustration to help you see how this all works out. Okay, One, six truths. Everyone is guilty of sin before God. We may downplay it or we may deny it, but every single one of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Number two, all sin deserves God's judgment. All of them. Uh, Not just the ones committed by our enemies, not just the ones committed against us, but all of them, large and small. Number three, the penalty for any sin is the full force of God's justice, which we see represented in death, and that comes to everybody. Everybody. Randy Alcorn has a great book on heaven. I would suggest it. I've read it two or three times. It's been food for my soul. But one of the things he says in this book is, we don't like to think about death. Yet worldwide, three people die every second, 180 every minute, and nearly 11,000 every hour. If the Bible is right about what happens to us after death, it means that more than 250,000 people every day go either to heaven or to hell. So this matters. Truth number four, Jesus himself pays the penalty. He is our substitute. Atonement, and then five, atonement means that God's justice is satisfied fully. There's not anything left. If you can imagine in my hand a cup of God's wrath and justice, imagine Jesus on the cross drinking it all, draining it so there's not even a drop left in it. That's what it means to atone for something. There's not a drop left of wrath at all for those who are in Christ. And so, this is number six, so by Jesus' substitution, our sins are all paid. God's justice is fully satisfied because Jesus substituted himself for us. Jesus came into the world to rescue us from a penalty we could never avoid, a punishment we could not escape. There's nothing we can do in all of our attempts to save ourselves, only make it worse. The Jews were trying to save themselves, and they only made the situation with them and other people worse by what they were doing with the legalism and the, uh, the rules and laws. It wasn't helping. It was keeping people from Christ. The things we do don't save us. Let me give you an example. So, Rebecca's parents uh, had, I think she's passed away now. Um, they have, uh, had a friend named Ann Smith. And Ann was in the MGM Grand Fire. Remember that back in 1980? November 20, Friday, November 21st, 1980, 85 people died in Las Vegas in this, what was the third largest hotel fire in American history. And Ann was there in one of the upper floors. So, the day that this happened, her husband had gone downstairs, and so she was upstairs in the room, and all of a sudden she uh, was just kind of looking out of the window, not aware that anything was going on, and fire engines began to pull up to the building, and she didn't know what she was going to do. She, was kind of, she began to see smoke, and she began to smell smoke through the vents that were coming in, and she realized the building is on fire. So she went to the hallway and opened the door, 
and the hallway was already sm filled with smoke. Now, the fire wasn't the main problem with this. It was the smoke that was everywhere, going through the ventilation system up into all the upper floors throughout the entire building. And most of the 85 people died from smoke uh, asphyxiation, from inhalation. So she opened the door, smoke billeted in, she closed the door, and she realized, I've got to get out of this building. So she opened the door and did the little latch so she could make her way back. And she started to go down the hallway, feeling along, holding her breath until she got to where she thought the, the uh, exit door was, and she couldn't open it. So she made her way back to her room and went in, took some gulps of, of breath to try to get her, air in her lungs again. And she said, maybe I maybe I misremembered. It's not down this way. It's the other way. So she held her breath, and she went down the other side of the hallway, making her way down, and uh, the door was locked. And what they found afterwards is, all the doors from the bottom floor to the top to the stairwell were all locked. So she couldn't get out. So she made her way back to her room, came in, closed it up, and just began to panic. What am I going to do? So she's thinking, I need to be resourceful because nobody's going to be able to make their way up to me. The, the ladders on the truck only reached to the ninth floor, and she was probably, she was 10th floor, 12th, you know, 15th floor. It's a 30-story building, I think. And so she decided, I'm going to have to shimmy down the side of this building. So she went out to the balcony, and she decides, there's nothing else I can do. I'd rather do this than be burned alive. So she climbed over the rail, inched her way down, and was hanging by the balcony. And she realized, this is stupid, <laughs> because if I let go, I'm just going to fall straight down the side of this building. She said, what was I thinking? And then she realized when she was hanging there, I don't have enough strength to lift my body back over the rail, which is a good reason to start doing pull-ups, y'all. So, so she's, she's looking, and she realizes there's, there's kind of a break. Everybody has their own little balcony right here, and then there's a space and then another balcony. So she's, she begins to swing her body as best she can to try to land in the adjacent balcony, not the one directly beneath her, but the one adjacent. So she's swinging her body as much as she can, and finally she gets enough momentum. She lets go, and she goes rocketing down to land on the balcony and shattered both of her legs. Everything, there's nothing she's doing that's going to work to save her. So she's just there on the balcony, convinced, I'm going to die. She's in pain. She can't go anywhere. She just lays there and waiting for death. And that's when she began to hear something from inside that other hotel room. And the firemen watched this whole thing transpiring, figured out what floor she was on. They made their way up through the building to where she was. They, they knocked down the door to her hotel room. They came to where she was, and they took off the bathroom door, laid her on it, strapped her to the board, and they're beginning to carry her out into the smoke-filled hallway, and the, doc, you know, the, the firemen have on their masks. And so one of the firemen started to take his off to put it on her, and she said, no, no, don't do that, because if you do that, you're going to get hurt. And he said, lady, if I don't do this, you're going to die. And she said, put it on. <laughs> and so they made their way down to the floor, got her to safety. And the firemen who rescued her he was in the hospital probably for longer than she was from smoke inhalation and dealing with that. There was nothing she could do to save herself. She needed somebody from the outside watching her predicament 
and having enough care and concern to come to where she was. And if you are looking at this passage in Luke chapter 23, what you see is a Jesus who is willing to do that. A Jesus who is willing to come to where we are because we couldn't save ourselves and only he could rescue us and at a great cost to himself. This is our savior. So we see Jesus' victory here. We see it in the temple veil being torn top to bottom in verse 45. The images of God tearing the the veil and saying, no longer will there be any separation between us. I'm tearing it and opening wide the gates to come into my presence. We see it in chapter 23, verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my, my spirit. He's been separated from God the entire time he's been on the cross. And once he's finished with his work of enduring the suffering for us, he says, Father, I'm coming home. I'm coming back to you now because I've paid for the sin. And then in chapter 23, verse 43, when uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There is nothing this man could have done to have rescued himself, to have saved himself. But Jesus is our rescuer. Listen to this from Philip Yancey, and we'll close with this. Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross. Knowing full well the thief had converted out of plain fear. That thief would never study the Bible, never attend synagogue or church, and never make amends to those he had wronged. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised, today you will be with me in paradise. It was another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done or do for God, but rather what God has done for us. And Jesus said, in Jesus, God says, I know what you did. And he says, in Jesus, all is forgiven. Trust him fully and completely. Oh, Jesus, what an incredible story we have in front of us in the Bible. It's a true story. It's a story of the world, and it's a story of our lives as well. And we're grateful that you have entered into our lives, and you have saved us, you have redeemed us, at great cost to yourself. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We pray that you would receive this last song as the tribute of our hearts, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.